Hello and welcome to the season three finale of the supporting cast. This is Eli Goldsmith. Courtney B. Vance is a Tony and Emmy award-winning American actor. In this episode, Courtney speaks about growing up in Detroit during the 60s and 70s and attending an independent school, Detroit Country Day, before heading to Harvard and then Yale School of Drama. In addition to discussing his career as an actor, Courtney describes many of the broader themes that have impacted both his family and his creativity, such as race, mental health, education, and criminal justice. Among the most noteworthy of Courtney's roles was playing O.J. Simpson defense attorney Johnny Cochran on FX's The People vs. O.J. Simpson, for which Courtney won an Emmy in 2016. Courtney describes finding his connection to Cochran through their shared experience of being, quote, the only black kid at an all-white school, end quote, and therefore also sharing, in his words, both the experiences and skill sets that helped Johnny to understand OJ and Courtney to understand Johnny. With appreciation for your time and attention and best wishes for a happy summer, this is the supporting cast. Courtney B. Vance, welcome to the supporting cast. Good to be here. Thank you for being here. It's a great honor to talk to you. And the first question I have really for every guest of the supporting cast, given we've been through a couple years of this global pandemic, we feel like we are slowly coming out of it, although some of our friends and colleagues are still testing positive and things. First question just about you. How are you and Angela and your family doing during this unique time? Health-wise, we're doing, we're doing very well. Emotionally, it's been a, a trial on our, our young people. Um, those two years, amazing that they were able to still thrive and do well in school, that, that, that for ninth grade, new school. Um, but emotionally, it, it's, it's taken a toll on them because 10th grade was really the year where they should be coming into their own, knowing people. But 10th grade was really their freshman year. They were at home for the ninth grade. We're grateful that there was that, that, that Harvard at Westlake did the best as one could be expected to do. Uh, with the uh, online schooling. Our children were not unique in that they were in, to, at a new school and felt they were in between their friend groups uh, here where we live and then there at HW. So yeah. it, it's, it's taken most of the year, I think, for them to really have to feel at peace and get a rhythm. And how do you as a parent, you know, this podcast is called The Supporting Cast. We talk about the people who mm -hmm. support us. How do you support your kids when they're struggling to adjust back to a new school in that way? We talk. We, we, yeah. uh, we find out where we can shore them up. It was uh, time for us to get some professional help. They uh, both got found wonderful therapists who uh, you know, were able to help identify some issues and calm a situation down so that they realize it's, there's nothing wrong with them. They, yeah. you know, they're, they're growing up and they're... Asking for help is okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I want to get to your professional life currently as well. 
I watch the show Better Call Saul on AMC, and I keep seeing these advertisements for a new show that you are on called 61st Street. Can you tell us a little bit mm. about that new show? 61st Street is a story about a, a family, two families actually, one where a young man is named Moses uh, Johnson. His father was a kingpin in the drug world, and he was taken down. He's been in jail for about 30 years. But his two sons, they're clean. The whole neighborhood and the community knows their history. The young men have chosen to remain clean, and so everyone is they have a pass through the neighborhood because they know Moses is going to go to college and he's a track star and he's going to be an Olympic athlete. And the next morning, he's heading to school. And that afternoon, as he and his brother are passing through the neighborhood, unbeknownst to them, there is a hit. Mm. The police are stinging the two rival gangs. Moses and his brother are caught in the middle of that. And the police, they know that Moses is clean, but they there was an accident and Moses is running and and getting trying to get away from them because he sees his life flash before them for him and he in the scuffle with the the unarmed policeman uh, the policeman is uh, is killed and they assume he killed him it was an accident of course but mm-hmm. uh, and i hear about it i'm uh, two weeks from retiring from being a public defender and my family is uh my wife is going into politics she's been taking care of our autistic child for 17 years and it's my turn and then as I'm you know, getting ready for that transition, she tells me that uh, Moses has been, that this has been a, a, a police has been killed and Moses, they're looking for Moses. I said, no, no, hmm. no, 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 it can't be him. It's not him. It can't be him. And the, that he's my line in the sand and I sacrifice everything for him. And my wife and I uh, are falling out because I promised her that I would take care of our son now so she could go out. And my health is compromised uh, as I have hmm. uh, prostate cancer. The question for all of us is what happens when, you know, life happens to you and you're thrown into the system and nobody cares Yeah, who is there for you? Um, you know, we all just hope and pray it never happens to us, but it happened to this family. And I, as the saying goes, if you don't stand for something, you fall for everything. I'm, I stood up as Rosa Parks did. She sat down and every, and the world changed. And so your character, that public defender, is there to support Moses in this situation. Yeah, I defend him as, as, a, as a defense attorney because yeah. I'm a public defender and I'm learning as I go. And the police are against us. The, my, my family is uh, against me. My health is against me. But uh, we find a way. And the story is about the two of them and the community coming together to find a way to defend this young man to save this young man from, uh, from the system. Wow. So I want to get to some of the people who supported you, Courtney. You grew up in Detroit, is that right? Correct. And tell me a bit about your family, your parents. Uh, my, my mother and father are both deceased. My mother passed away almost five years ago. She was a librarian for 30 years at the Detroit Public Libraries. Hmm. Um, my father worked in benefits at Chrysler. He uh, died of suicide um, 30 years ago, almost 30 years ago. My sister and I, who's two years older than I am, grew up in a household with love, uh, lower to middle class, but uh, we never knew that. We got our Christmas tree the night before Christmas. It was exciting to go get, you know, we didn't know that we, the Christmas trees the night before Christmas are a dollar. We uh, grew up during the riots in the 67, uh, the riots in Detroit, the tanks came down our street. We grew up in a time period where there the, was black power and then 
They had a, the first black mayor, one of the first black mayors in the country, but definitely the first one in Detroit. Coleman Young told the white people, we don't need you. And the white people said, okay, and they left. Over the summer of 69, the, uh, our block, and of course the city flipped from being all white and a smattering of blacks on our block to all black and a smattering of whites. And the um, neighborhood shifted, the school shifted, and our parents uh, pulled us out of the public school, which was all black. And so we grew up in an all black community for our whole lives. And all of a sudden we're thrust into a, a all white Catholic community. And I was in Catholic schools and private schools for, uh, until I went to Harvard. And there was no therapy sessions and asking, how are you feeling? Yeah. We had to, we had to figure it out. And were you aware your father was tormented at that time? Troubled. Yeah. No, I, mm. I knew that my mother and father were having some difficulties, but all marriages are challenging. And as I said, there was no therapy for, for us back then. And um, I just knew that, you know, um, they loved us and supported us. And I, my parents were always at my athletic events, my award ceremonies. My um, I ended up getting the highest honor at Detroit Country Day School, and my parents were there. And my father was uh, one of the last things he did was pay off my Harvard loan. Wow. You know, eight, ten credit cards maxed out, but he, he made sure he paid off my Harvard loan. So he, uh, he let me know, he let us know um, what he felt about uh, me, what he felt about our family, what he felt about, you know, and I knew it was my uh, responsibility to do well at Detroit Entry Day and go to Harvard. And so our family was very much about discipline, taking care of uh, each other and uh, um, education. Yeah. The reason I ask it, just a, a odd connection, I suppose. My, uh, my father was born in Detroit, actually, mm. and his father took his life actually mm. my father's father when my dad was about five or so mm. and so i think about people we talk a lot about your, mental health your grandfather your my grandfather. grandfather my grandfather wow. who i who i never met and it was uh my, my dad was just a little boy but i wow. think about mental health and how we are yeah. beginning to understand it now really only right. in the last few years and the kind of lack of resources people probably had back then right right None, no resource. Yeah. It was, uh, it was taboo. I want to get to your schooling, though. You, you mentioned you went to Detroit Country Day. Um, mm -hmm. How did you find yourself to that school community? I went, to, I went to the boys club of Highland Park. My parents were looking for a place during the summers to be able to uh, find a safe place for uh, my sister and I. Uh, yeah. It wasn't the boys and girls clubs at that point. It was the boys club of Highland Park. But during the summers, we uh, we needed some place to hang out, and we could hang out there. I could hang out there all day. And then uh, during the summers, we had day camp, uh, and then uh, and then of course overnight camp. And my camp counselor was a gentleman named Mr. George Brown, who mm -hmm. uh, became my mentor, and um, he eventually uh, encouraged my parents to have me be a counselor at the camp, and then. Uh, and encouraged my father and mother to have me apply to Detroit Country Day School, which was a, a very uh, high-functioning uh, private school in Detroit, probably the elite school in Detroit and in, in Michigan, probably. I got in, and uh, then my father pulled me aside in the basement that uh, that summer of eighth grade. He said, where are you going to school? I said, St. Mary's of Redford. I know we can't afford Country Day. He said, your mother and I have decided to sacrifice and send you to Country Day, and I felt my life spin 
right there. And I knew the responsibility I had to get involved in things and to, there was an opportunity for me to, to achieve my goal, which was to like my uncle to go to, to go to Harvard. And uh, yeah. so, um, but, but uh, George Brown was, uh, he was my track coach. Mm-hmm. I ran the high hurdles, long jump and uh, 440 relay. And he was my history teacher. Mm-hmm. So he was like my father there. And in fact, my father and he were very close. And were there, once you were there, kind of were there teachers at Detroit Country Day that were influential to you kind of prior to going to Harvard? Oh, yes. Uh, Miss Kay Slaughter, who unfortunately she uh, took her life as, as well. Wow. Some years after I finished. Uh, but she, uh, my ninth grade English teacher uh, in the 11th grade, she pulled me aside. And I was, I guess I was fooling around the hallway or something. She pulled me aside and she said, Courtney, do you, do you understand that the whole school is looking at you? and watching you to see what you're going to do. And of course I, I didn't. And that, uh, that shifted my focus. And why, why were people looking at you? To, as, as a role model, they were yeah. watching me. I was, I was doing everything. I was uh, making announcements at, during lunchtime. I was in different clubs and choir and student government. And I was a three sport all state athlete. Wow. I was doing everything. All the young people were uh, looking at me and uh, watching me and trying to emulate me. So I'm, I'm, I, you know, you're in the middle of your life. You don't know. But she took me aside, Mrs. Hannett, my English teacher, uh, my honors English teacher. From I was in in her class, tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade, and uh, I wrote a paper. I believe it was on Native Son, or maybe, it may have been on Invisible Man. I can't remember. She wrote in the notes: Go to Harvard. Go to Yale. Go to Princeton. Go wherever you want to go. You are on your way. Um, you know the those two ladies and uh, George Brown really mm-hmm. uh, set the tone for me to keep me focused, so that no matter what happened and no matter what tried to dissuade me and get in my way, I was staying focused and kept my eye on on my goal. And I was, you know, I was at Country Day for three sports and uh, the clubs and everything because I was so excited to be at Country Day. I was there 16 hours a day and uh, no time to, it taught me how to manage my time, how to, you know, at every moment I was trying to figure out where I was going to study. How was I, so when I got home at nine o'clock, I was finished with my studies. And I was ready to eat and go to bed and get ready for the next day. So, you know, it was a journey. It was a journey for my entire family. It was a sacrifice. My mother said after my last football game, she said, if I ever come back to, up to the school again, it'll be the last thing I do. She was up at the school just about every day working. And then because I was captain of the three sports for two years, the last two years, there was no email. <laughs> you know, the, the captain's mothers had to make all the phone calls to arrange things. Um, so it was, a, it was a family affair. And the school was, of course, 25 miles away. So uh, it wasn't an easy commute for any, any of us. But uh, it was a commitment and a commitment that was very, very worth it. And were you involved in drama at Detroit Country Day? Uh, interestingly enough, I was not. I mm. was. Uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. That's one of the the beautiful things about life is that you know so many people say you got to figure out what you want to. You don't. You're 18. How do you know? My English teacher, another one of the English teachers, Mr. Ronnie Clemmer, told me, Courtney, you should. You know, we're you're a senior. You have two lines. Come and be in our place. So it was a play called Harvey. And he made me promise, he said, Courtney, promise me when you get to Harvard that you'll do some shows and have a good time. And I said, okay, I will. My freshman year, I ran track, ran 
hurdles. I was the number two hurdler. And this is at Harvard. Any, at Harvard, I wasn't yeah. having any fun anymore because I was, you know, with the same group of guys all the time. And, and you know, I said when I got to Harvard, I I figured out what I wanted to do from meeting people. I realized I said I'm not doing. What I'm. I said I would do after my last hurdle my freshman year. I said that's it. I told my coach he was very upset with me, but uh, I realized I was going to do shows because every time I did a show, I'd be with another group of people and we'd be talking. And I figured out what I wanted to do. Little did I know that it was the theater. That was my yeah. aunt came and saw the second show, and she said, "Courtney, you you're really good at this. You should think about this as a career." Bam, that was it. And so after Harvard. Did you work in theater for a while before going to the MFA program at, at Yale, or did you go straight I there? Took, uh, I was completely fried from Harvard and the— Four years of college. Four years of college. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the last two years of it, I was deep in theater. I was, in a, I was a member of the Boston Shakespeare Company and in rep doing shows and my work-study jobs. I delivered papers at, in Harvard Yard, New York Times, Boston Globes, and Harvard Crimson. I had about four or five work-study jobs. Was the American Repertory Theater there when you were there? ART was there. Robert Brewstein was the artistic director. And I worked there for a couple of shows. And one of the lead actors there, Miss uh, Kathy Slade, and she said, Courtney, you should be in, uh, get in touch with the Shakespeare and Company in Lenox, Massachusetts. And you know, I ended up being an apprentice there for two summers and met the voice teacher who gave me a recommendation to apply to Yale. And I mean, it's all... You know, yeah, all, connected. all connected. So, you know, from from the beginning where I said, I just want to do something that makes me happy and country day, country day at the boys club. Yeah. I had a work study job in grad school at the American Repertory Theater. Uh, Actually, I worked, wow. I did um, some uh, development work there while in graduate school and loved that, loved that place. Saw some great performances. The uh, the artistic director, Diane Paulus is. Yep. She, she was is, there when uh, I was there. Yeah. Yep. She is. Um, they're fundraising for a new uh, new new theater. Ah, are they? It's going to be yeah. a brave new world there very very shortly. Um, in fact, her daughter, she just found out that her daughter is going to Harvard. So, oh really? In wow. the fall, yeah. So it's wow. a very exciting time for her. So tell me about Yale School of Drama. Uh, it sounds like you had a real mentor there as well. You also met your wife there, as I understand, mm -hmm. Angela Bassett. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of tell me about both of those experiences. I suppose uh, Yale was uh, very heady. I was. Uh, I applied for Yale. I was uh, had a girlfriend, um, longtime girlfriend, and I knew I had to take a year off. I just wanted to take a year off and just. I worked at the Museum of Fine Arts at Boston on the midnight shift. I was security guard. I wanted to make just enough money to be a fly out and see my girlfriend, who was in San Francisco at the time at American American Conservatory Theater. And uh, so I crashed on my uncle's couch for five months, and then. Uh, a couple other friends' couches for the other four or five months, honed my pieces while I was walking the, the halls of the Japanese wing at the Museum of Fine Arts. And, and she, my girlfriend uh, applied out there because she got applied to Yale but didn't get in the first time she applied. Applied a second time out there in San Francisco. I applied in New Haven, and I was standing over at my friend's house who lived next to a cemetery opening up the envelope saying, this is, a, this is going to be either a very, very good day or a very, very bad day. <laughs> and I got in, called her. She, there was a moment of silence on the phone because we both didn't know whether the other one got in. And then we started screaming. And yeah. uh, so we both got in. They didn't know we knew each other. First time that happened. And uh, we were there. We had a, an amazing uh, teacher in Earl Gister. And I went there basically because I, I was 
had to figure out how to what to do with my nerves. My knees were shaking on on when I was on stage, and and Mr. Gister uh, helped me focus on my task at hand, my business. So I calmed that calmed me down, and so I had a an amazing classwork our, our first year. And I believe that was uh, the reason that I was cast in Fences for our, our second year. And uh, my second year, my girlfriend said, you better look on the casting board. And there was I was cast in the play, which I was just talking to James Earl this past weekend uh, mm-hmm. at his, uh, his uh, estate up in uh, upstate New York. And that's um, James Earl Jones? James Earl Jones. Um, he's 91 now. And um, wow. just re- reminiscing over the, the five different renditions of the play we did. Uh, did at Yale, re-rehearsed it. And Chicago Goodman Theater re-rehearsed it for the current theater, which was pre-Broadway. And then we uh, re-rehearsed it for Broadway, and we ran it for eight, nine, ten months. And then we put it up again at the um, Doolittle Theater in uh, Los Angeles for three months. So the, that play is, is deeply, deeply in me. We were just sitting around uh, James Earl's kitchen, with, and we were just telling stories and, and uh, just laughing and crying and Three, four hours later, we looked up and said, whoa, <laughs> James Earl said, okay, I have to go take a nap now. <laughs> so um, <laughs> the Lloyd Richards, uh, he got there with my wife's first year at Yale Drama School, class of 83. So, you know, we were all in awe of him, first African-American dean of the, an artistic director of Yale Drama School. And we both ended up being able to work with him closely. She was in Joe Turner's Come and Gone. And we did uh, Fences and the Regionals a couple times. So I met Angela at, at Yale. Uh, I got into Yale, but they weren't giving me any money. I, my first two years, I had to, you know, take out complete loans. And my last year, I, was, I got a full ride. But I had to go up there to figure it out. And while I was up there with the uh, financial officer, which is Mr. Arthur Papini, who's passed away, God rest his soul, Arthur said, why don't you... Um, I'm going to get some young people together. We figured it out. I'm going to get some young people together to show you around to your own school. So it was, it was Charles Dutton. It was John Turturro. And mm-hmm. it was Angela Bassett. And wow. they took me to the school uh, water hole, uh, the gypsy. Um, we all chit-chatted and talked. And, but I was with uh, uh, you know, a young lady for a long time. And she and, and Mr. Dutton were together. So we weren't thinking about each other. You know, mm. 13 years or so later, we, we got together. Oh, I see. So it was uh, quite a while after that experience that you and Angela got together, actually. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. And you've had a, a long and very successful career as an actor. I do want to ask you about one of your performances, and I'll, I'll frame it this way. When my mm-hmm. wife and I first moved in together after we started dating, mm-hmm. we moved into an apartment on the 800 block of Bundy in Brentwood, which <laughs> for those who know that block it is the same block where the murder of nicole brown simpson and ronald goldman occurred we lived at the uh this was we we moved in you know long after the murder but we lived at one end of the block and i knew that the former address of nicole brown simpson was at the other end of the Mm. block there on Mm. bundy near montana Mm. i just loved your performance of johnny cochran Mm. in the fx show the people versus oj simpson I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your approach to playing Johnny Cochran. This is, you won an Emmy. I mean, this was a very praised Mm -hmm. performance and Mm -hmm. my wife and I just loved it. Can Mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about how you approached that role? Well, I was completely uh, in in awe. I was completely intimidated 
And so I said, I, I've got to do, I mean, every, every role, you've got to figure out the way in. Yeah. You know, you, 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 you've got to, you know, figure out how I'm going to do this. How am I going to approach this? How, you know, cause basically you have to, you want to be able to stand up there if you're on stage or in front of the camera, you want to be able to stand up there and be free. So the camera or the audience can just see you and not see your fear. Um, yeah. So I said, on this one, I think I'm just going to read my college classmate, Jeffrey Tubin. Mm -hmm. His book, uh, the run of the run of your life, phenomenal book. I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna read that book a couple times. Find me a kernel of information, which was when I realized that uh, that Johnny Cochran's mom said, uh, you know, her son. The, you know, I think she had four or five sons or children. She said this one's gonna go to an all white school, and you know, then he's <clears throat> goes meet whoever he's gonna meet, and that's that's gonna be his journey. I said, wow. He went to an all-white school. So did I. Hmm. I said, I got him. That's all I need to know. Uh, the scripts are great. And that's the information that I, I need to be able to, you know, to find my way. All I did know was that uh, we're going to be television, you move fast. So yeah. but can, got, I, can I pause you there, though, Courtney? Mm -hmm. what, what was it about you going to an all-white school and Johnny Cochran going to an all-white school that you felt a was a connection or, or that was a level at which you felt like you understood him. Understood what he had to do, how mm -hmm. he had to turn, change himself around in order to feel like he knows, you know, no one knows what, what it takes. Uh, and most white folks never have to be in that situation where they're the only one. Right. And uh, how that, and to fit in uh, so much so that white folks don't feel, oh, you're not black, you're, so they said about OJ, you know, he's not black, he's OJ. Right, right. You know, he's not. So I know Johnny felt that. I know, you know, oh, you're not, you're not black, you're Johnny. Hey, Johnny, <laughs> hey, you guy. You know, I mean, all black folks, you know, of color folks who are in an all-white environment, they've got to figure out how am I going to fit in? How am I going to make everybody feel okay? Mm. You know, this, that's the journey. And I, I knew that Johnny had to do that, go through that journey. OJ, he was the, the OG um, because, you know, all, all OJ was the OG because nobody, he was the first one that crossed over Hugh. Yeah. He wasn't black. He was OJ. Right. That's what he used to say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. He's OJ. And so it wasn't just about what the trial was about. It was about so many things, class, celebrity. But Johnny understood that. He understood what was operating, how to navigate. Yeah. And I understood and had to figure out how to navigate. And OJ understood and navigated better than anybody. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, it, it, uh, uh, you, you, when you get too far up near the sun, as Icarus found out, you, <laughs> the wings will melt, right. the wax melt. Do you think Johnny also understood? He was playing to the jury, certainly seemed to understand where the jury was coming from, yeah, the state of sort of race relations in Los absolutely. Angeles. But he was also, it felt like, and this is where it gets to your performance, kind of also playing to the camera, meaning it felt like he knew that what he was doing was not only telling a story to the jury, but he knew that millions of people were watching him and had a sense of theatricality to That's kind of right. what he was doing that you really, I feel like you really nailed. How did you figure out how to strike that balance of not going too big, but he was kind of a big presence, the real guy, you know? You know, it's, you know just, it, the scripts were wonderful. 
It was, yeah. it was a it was a perfect opportunity. My whole life worked toward that moment, mm. and I literally lived in my trailer for six months, five six months because of the trying to get there through traffic every day. You know, thank God for my family, you know, <laughs> my wife and the executive assistant at the time, and I had to thank everybody when I went got yeah. up there on that 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 podium that night because you know you can't do it by yourself. I just I. If it wasn't for that they helped me and took the load off me, I couldn't have concentrated as much as I had to concentrate to get. Those scenes were coming fast. And, and if you do a courtroom drama, it's all about the cross-examination and the opening and the closings. And it's just, yeah. it's just, it's monstrous in the courtroom. as 61st Street, you know, you know, two right. seasons. You're playing, of, a, you know, you're playing two, a defense attorney again. Defense <laughs> attorney, you know, this is, it's, you know, it's just, there's nothing, no way around the courtroom. You got, you got to open, you got to close, you got to cross-examine. But Johnny was, was an opportunity that I was ready for. Um, yeah. You know, the, you know, cause you, you, things could come your way and you just not up to the task and you falter. And for this one, I was just ready and the, yeah. my, the family was ready. And so, you know, me going up there, and I really did mean, it. I gave it to my wife cause she, you know, she's the ultimate actor, actress, and everybody knows it. And everybody knew that that was hers, that Tina, and she just keeps pushing. She don't say nothing. She just keeps pushing. She's just, you know, just does her thing better than anybody. And I just know that one day when it's her time, the whole world's going to lift it up. Oh, it's going to be an amazing day. One more follow-up on the OJ. Have you seen, I assume you did, the, the documentary as well, OJ Made in America, the one that- Oh, it was so amazing. It was so unbelievable. amazing. Unbelievable. It's so amazing. And in fact, you got to watch that one first and then ours, I felt, because it really gives the backdrop of how we became who we was. Yes. You know, and the, that whole USC-ness of it all, that all this was going on with Bill Russell and Kareem and, and Muhammad Ali, and, and they were all gathering about what the state of- Black America and, and the riots and OJ was sitting right in the center of, of you know he wasn't there with when they were all gathering he was OJ because yeah. he's not black he's OJ right. and it sets you up for our piece the hubris the arrogance he had been lifted up that way for so long the Hertz commercials and yep. Yep. the movies and once you twenty five years of being the man. You can do no wrong. And quiet as kept, he couldn't. We made him that way. You know, we all had a hand in OJ being OJ. We, as black people, we like, yeah, put him up there. We want to see a black man up there. So unfortunately, he wasn't, uh, you know, necessarily the right one to be there because uh, he got too close to the sun. Regardless of who knows what happened. Who knows what happened? I don't know. We're not deciding that here. I'm not saying he... He did it. I'm not, I don't know. Johnny's victory wasn't about guilt or innocence. It's about, by a shadow of a doubt, you got to prove that he did it. And there was a, a, a shadow. And so he walked. If the glove don't fit. You must acquit. <laughs> it's true. And the documentary I'm talking about is the Ezra Edelman one that came out that won the Oscar and the Emmy and everything else. And my wife and I watched it. And after seeing it all, I think you're absolutely right. I don't know if my feelings about what happened changed that much, but the the not guilty verdict 
while at the time in the 90s, many people, especially I'll, I'll speak to many white people in particular, were surprised by the verdict. Mm -hmm. After watching the documentary, you see exactly why the verdict was the way that it was. And it's an opportunity. And it really is, I feel, you know, the, these these cases that come up over and over and over again, you know, George Floyd, you know, yeah. uh, Brianna, they come up because there's, a, there's something going on in our society. And we keep it happens, the verdict happens, positive or negative, and we, we, it, it's an opportunity for us to talk about it, yeah. to, to understand why white folks were furious, black folks were celebratory. Why? Why did you feel? Why do you, why are you, I mean, you have to understand the history of how blacks in this country, of color folks in this country, Native Americans in this country. In this city. This, yeah. In the city, this, this system doesn't work for us. It never has worked for us. But there's this one time, the biggest case of all time, Emmett Till, he was obviously beat crazy and beat silly and, and murdered. And they walked and they knew they were going to walk. And it's yeah. you know, just Rodney King. They walked. I mean, and that's what was so frightening about George Floyd. The camera's on him. He said, yeah, what about it? Because he knew the history of this country was if you're white and you, you, you're a police officer, you can do what you want and you will walk. And that's what we need to talk about. That's what I feel all these cases are about. It's an opportunity for us to, which is what 61st Street shines a light on, is an opportunity for us to talk about what this obvious issue is. It's the, the elephant in the room is race. Last question about acting before I have some kind of get to know you questions. What do you love, Courtney, about acting? I'm a history buff. I, and I, I like biographies big thick biographies so I can understand I can see how people how they began where the spark came from and I like to I like to drive I like to drive across the country this is the greatest most beautiful country in the world and there's so many different you know the hills and the valleys and the cities and the, you know most people don't live in big cities most people live in medium-sized to small towns and how they mm -hmm. they the rhythms of their of their town, the chamber of commerces and and the, the different boards that people are on, and and the small police departments. Everybody knows everybody, and it's uh, it's the way it should be in big cities that the police know the people in their community, and the people in the community know their policemen, and they work together. So it's not an us versus them thing, which is what I think where where the problem is in our communities. So before we go, there are a few kind of get to know you questions, Courtney, that relate to Los Angeles, where we are located, separate sides of Los Angeles at the moment. We are known for our movies, our food, and our climate. So my first mm. question to you, what is Courtney B. Vance's favorite movie of all time? Oh, wow. Of all time. Uh, mm -hmm. I just saw a great movie last night called Drive with Ryan Gosling. Oh, yeah. And um, Casey Mulligan. Oh, so good. You remember that? Yeah, oh, cool yeah. music. 2011, yeah. great. But my favorite movie of all time has to be The Godfather. That probably and The Sound of Music. This mm -hmm. is my first movie that my parents let my sister and I see. But with The Godfather, one and two, not three, one and two. Secondly, what's your favorite meal in Los Angeles? Is there a restaurant oh. that you and Angela love? Is there something you guys make at home that you love? Funny, because I just went to Massa in New York. The Time Warner building is oh, so delicious. Uh, sushi. But probably my favorite 
I love every now and then. I love a, a well done, medium to well done steak mm-hmm. and all the wonderful places to go. But Ruth Chris messes with me with that 500 degree hot plate. They put that their, their meals on and they, that between that and oh, I guess maybe the Montage Hotel and Laguna Beach, the studio, I believe is the name of the the five-star restaurant, the studio. I have to go back there. I haven't been there in a long time. and take my wife and the kids there for a nice meal. Probably um, the restaurant at the Montage Hotel in Laguna Beach, and then the Ruth Chris here in Pasadena. Okay. And a little more medium to well done, medium well. Medium well, closer to well. Yeah, that's that's what I like too. A lot of people like their steaks more rare. I like mine no. a little more. Well, it, that's, little it, more it, that's well the wonderful thing about having it cooked on a, a plate that's 500 degrees. No matter what you, <laughs> it's still cooking by the time you get it. By the time you eat <laughs> right. it, it's, if you got it medium, yeah. it's now medium well by the time you finish it. Third question. What's your favorite place in Los Angeles? Could be a, a part of town, could be a, a street, an area. I love the beach at right outside the airport. I can't remember the. It's right down the Imperial Parkway. Uh, Dockweiler, maybe. There it or? Is. Thank you. How do you oh. know that? How do you know that? <laughs> I love going down there, and the the thing that I've always wanted to do, which is go down there early, reserve. One of those bonfire little places yep. with a bunch yep. of us to sit there and just grill and talk. And I love, I love Pasadena. There's so many things to do in Pasadena, and the homes are beautiful, and the shops are great. You know, um, I'm sure of all the places in LA. I like to drive, so it's it's hard to get me to to pin me down at one one place uh, in Los Angeles. I just, you know, I I like to get in the car and just, you know, explore. So it's a tough one for me. Last question. I am the, uh, I know you are a parent. I am the parent of two little girls. Uh, Mm. Actually one, I have a daughter who's three and a half and another who is 11 months old. You're in the middle of it. I'm in the middle of it. Yeah. I always ask, I always end each interview with kind of what's your best parenting advice? And it could come from you as a parent. It could come from things that your parents, sort of lessons that they imparted to you? What would be your advice for me as the parent of two little girls? Uh, figure out what the, what the discipline is going to be and be consistent. Children are going to be children. They're going to they're gonna lie. They're going to you know, tell you they, they have chocolate cake all over their face. And you say, did you eat that chocolate cake? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. <laughs> You've met my daughter, I think. Courtney. <laughs> Your daughter, my daughter, me. Um, yeah. So, you know, what is the rhythm of the house? How do we handle discipline? And so by the time they're teenagers, we, as we, uh, my wife and I said, we'll deal with when you're 10, 11, we'll deal with, you know, nine and 10 year and 11 year old issues. But when you're 16, 17, we're not dealing with 10 and 11 year issues. We're not dealing with that. We should be past that. We should be on that. Well, Courtney, thank you so much for the advice and for the time. Uh, and thank you for joining the supporting cast. 